You're listening to the PKA Experience Podcast. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and I've got a very special guest on today's episode. She is a multiple award, Emmy award-winning investigative journalist. Her name is Cheryl Atkinson. She's been an anchor and correspondent at CNN. Um, she's also worked at CBS News for many years and uh, was a correspondent there. And during her time there, she faced some things that were quite alarming for somebody who was just honestly pursuing the truth as it unfolded. Um, I get into that in the call. It's the subject matter of her two books, with, uh, with the first of which um, was called Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of, of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington. The second one was called The Smear, How Shady po- Political Operatives and Fake News Control What You See, What You Think, and How You Vote. Um, both became New York Times bestsellers, and she's now the host of Sinclair's Full Measure, which is a Sunday morning news program that reaches about 43 million households per week. Um, Cheryl has obviously a wealth of experience and also wisdom that uh, is the reason why I wanted to have her on the program because um, I feel like things are really, in the last decade and a half or so, have really shifted in, in the media from you know, really be, being a government watchdog, being a, a watchdog for the people, and instead really shifting into more of a... Um, a, a manipulator and influencer of public ideology and basically producing stories, um, some might even say propaganda, to advance special interest agendas. So anyway, we dive into all that in this call. It's a great, uh, if you haven't heard of Cheryl before, I, I highly recommend that you check out her two books. She is a um, honest seeker of truth as far as I can see. Um, and we could certainly use more of that. So enjoy the call. Let me know what you think. I am now on Apple iTunes uh, podcast directory. If you want to download your podcast app on your smartphone, you can find me on there. Just do a search for PKX and the program will pop up. I appreciate your support. Here we are with Cheryl Atkinson. All right. I am with Cheryl Atkinson. Uh, She is the um, host of Sinclair's Sunday TV program, Full Measure. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me on the call today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to talk to you today, obviously, about your message, your primary message uh, of truth, essentially, and um, just where things are at right now with the media and how we can actually trust what the media is telling us. Um, you have a, a book about fake news. Tell us what, first of all, what you, how you define fake news and how the average person can decipher what's fake and what's actually authentic. Well, I learned something pretty surprising when I wrote, wrote my book, The Smear, which came out last year, because I wanted to know when that phrase originated. And if you understand when I write how I believe, based on people who operate in this universe I've interviewed, nothing happens by accident. That phrase, fake news, was put there for a reason by somebody. So not knowing the answer, I researched it. And it turns out, you'll be surprised by this, I think, uh, the phrase wasn't used as a popular context until, when do you think it first arose, just wild guess? Was it like the 2012 election, 2016 election? What is your guess? Um, well, I've had the advantage of seeing some of your stuff online, so I know the answer to that. But I, if, if I didn't know that already, I would have said that it was, you know, a, a little while ago. I mean, it seems like fake news has been around, you know, since the Internet. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, 
and when I ask audiences that, most of them guess at least as far back as about 2012. And in fact, the first popular use of it that you probably saw if you have looked at my internet stuff was September 13th, 2016, almost at the very end of the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And it was put out there by a nonprofit called First Draft, which said it was going to get behind an effort to you know, stop fake news and malicious hoaxes. And then within about a month, President Obama gave what I thought at the time, not knowing any of this, was an odd speech at Carnegie Mellon. And he said, we needed to tackle, you know, this wild, wild west media environment. Somebody needed to curate our information so we would know what to believe. And I remember thinking at the time, huh, that's really strange because that's, you know, that's done for a reason. That wasn't an off-the-cuff remark. And nobody in the public, if you can get your mentality back to before this time, nobody was saying, oh, there's fake news and we need the government to curate our information or Facebook to, you know, censor our information for us. That just wasn't happening. But it was soon followed by just that, after President Obama spoke about it, suddenly headlines as if we had our marching orders, you know, every day, fake news, this, fake news, that. Mm-hmm. So I went back to follow the money to see who was behind that, that nonprofit that originated the phrase in its modern context, first draft. And I called them because they don't have any paperwork filed as a nonprofit or a charity yet. And they said they got their funding from Google. And Google, as you may know, their parent company is Alphabet, who was run at the time by Eric Schmidt the top Hillary Clinton donor. Mm -hmm. And he started or provided the funding to start first draft around the start of the election cycle. So it starts to look sort of like the rollout of a campaign to, in my view, control information people were getting in the last place that is is sort of a wild, wild west on the internet where you can get views maybe other people don't want you to see or facts that other people are trying to shape. Mm -hmm. So, you know, long story short, this was a liberal effort that ultimately Donald Trump co-opted in the way only he can by calling, you know, the people calling him fake news, he called them that back. And now people mistakenly believe he was the one who thought up the phrase. Right. So how does, how does one decipher what's actually fake or not? Well, it depends on your view of fake. So there's, there's two definitions. The left says it's, you know, they're pointing to just made up websites and, and there's examples in my book, fabricated news that's entirely false, such as the Pope endorsed Bernie Sanders or whatever it is, stuff that never mm-hmm. happened. And then Donald Trump and his supporter or maybe conservative views are the the notion of mainstream outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, the networks making unprecedented slick mistakes of sloppiness and fact errors born of what he would say is a bias against him. So there's two definitions of fake news. And between the two of them, there has been, I'm sure, more media mistakes by formerly top, well-respected media outlets like the ones I named than ever before in the past two years. I mean, major mistakes that would have put them out of business 10 years ago if they had such a series and would have Mm -hmm. drummed the reporters out of journalism. And yet now they're so commonplace that it's hard to know what to believe. And if you're like me, no matter what I hear reported by anybody, no matter how many sources, no matter who's saying it, I don't on its face automatically believe it till I know more. Doesn't mean it's false. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it might be out of context or it might be false. And you just can't tell these days. You just have to suspend your belief system for the moment till you know more. Yes. Um, I mean, I used to think that with the, you know, advent of technology and everything, I mean, a lot of people were calling this the information age and the truth age. That there was transparency with technology. We can find out you know, what anybody said whenever. And it seems to be almost the opposite where the technology has actually been 
uh, a tool for for manipulation and you know channeling the narrative in a way that uh, serves an agenda as opposed to actually telling the truth. Um, and it only seems like it's going to get worse. I mean, I've seen videos where you could fake you know, where people can, can basically pretend like they're Trump or, or somebody else. And even with their own voice, they can make them say essentially whatever they want. How do we, how do we moving forward? Like what is the future of journalism and, and how do we protect the truth so that we can make sure that we're not being manipulated? Well, you make really good points. And I think you're right about all of what you just said. Um, one thing I want to mention is when we say how to recognize what to believe, it's almost counterintuitive. But when I hear everybody on the same narrative discussing the same story out of the thousands of stories that could be told in a given day, when everybody's on point with two or three, and I'm talking MSNBC, Fox, CNN, doesn't matter right or left, if they're all talking about the same couple of stories and yep. almost nothing else, that makes me suspicious. My automatic thought is not, hey, that's true, or gee, that's a burning news topic. My automatic thought is, hmm, who's putting that out? You know, who wants this narrative to be furthered? That's my initial, you know, knee-jerk response after studying this phenomenon for a couple of years. So that's one yep. way to look at it. Um, right. For the future, you say, what are we going to do? Well, I think the media, and, and I wrote some of this, needs to, to fix it, needs to recognize a problem. And by and large, we don't. By and large, we say, one side will say the other's fake news, but we're good. And the other side will say they're fake news, but we're factual. Nothing about what we're doing. So we haven't come to grips yet with the idea that we have a national, it's become an international problem. How are we going to fix it? I think that out in the public, when I travel around and speak and meet people and report, the public is desperate to have a source like I would say CNN was when I worked there back in 1990, that more or less, at least I think we did a good job at it, you know, called things down the middle, did not have an agenda, just reported, you know, the facts. When the president would speak back then, and we'd come out as the anchors and summarize it. We didn't put our opinion in there. We just said the president just spoke about X, Y, and Z. And here's his main two points. We didn't say that was the worst, most horrible speech I ever heard. Outrageous. You know, right. it's all changed. And I think people, I would say maybe you've learned this too. Even if people want to watch a left-wing source or a right-wing source, those same people still want to go to someplace where they don't have to discount what they're seeing, where they can kind of just see the middle and think to themselves that it came down hard on one side or non-political reporting, that that's just because of how it was. It's not because that's how that network or that reporter wanted to make things seem. Yes. And, um, you know, that's what I've always tried to do. I, I mostly do non-political reporting, but to the extent that I touch on politics, I, um, you know, I think people want to hear um, rational discourse, various viewpoints, and you just don't get that. You get talking points <laughs> on the cable channels, and believe me, the propagandists have figured this out. You get someone on the left, someone on the right. Often both, both of them hate Trump, by the way, so it's not really necessarily fair. <laughs> and you get them providing the talking points du jour, and they call it fair because you've heard from both sides. But in fact, all you've heard, it's like state television. You become a, a facilitator of propaganda and state TV by saying, we'll just put out your talking points du jour, left and right, and the public learns nothing because there's nothing unexpected. There's nothing even necessarily real about what you're hearing. You're just a, a venue for propaganda. Yes. I, I honestly don't know how you have any hair left because the stuff that you've been sharing 
just hearing it from you drives me insane. And, and more than just being, you know, emotional about it or frustrated about it rather. Um, I mean, this is, it's such a profound uh, piece to Liberty that if we don't have honest um, critical thinking from our media, we're, we're in trouble. And, and state media is a real sign of that. And it sounds like from what, you know, I'm hearing from you and, and some of the stuff that I've researched about you and in your books, you're really saying that um, a lot of this narrative at the so-called media companies are driven by a handful of sources that's, you know, has an agenda that, that that's creating a narrative. Um, and they've learned of, how to, they've learned how to, you know, they know how we work. So they've either been hired in our newsroom to influence us or they understand how to put us on lists and talk to us in such a way through third parties and nonprofits that, you know, maybe we're not suspicious enough of, and it all, as you say, furthers to promulgate the narrative du jour. Yeah. Yes. Now, obviously you've experienced this firsthand. Um, your first book, Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of, of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington, really details several of the stories that you started to dig into. And um, before actually we get into that, for the average person, of which I am one in this case, can you explain fr- sort of from uh, a bird's eye view, what's a start to finish for a story? How does the lead, you know, where do you get a lead? How does it start? And what is the what is the process through which it goes through at a, at a uh, media company? All I can do is give you an example because there are as many different ways as I could possibly describe. So there's no standard way. But for me, let's talk about an investigative story, not a, as we call a same-day story or a quick okay. story. Um, I try not to take stories in general that are brought to me, and that's basically what's become a huge phenomenon. Stories are brought to reporters through what look like charities or nonprofits or PR firms or certain sources, and they're speaking on behalf of paid clients in ways they don't always disclose. I don't want those stories. Those are people trying to put forth narratives. I want to peek behind the curtain, and I want to put forth stories that they don't want us to hear. So that requires a whole different process of thinking and you know, deciding what's, what's real. So I may look at the news, and I look behind it and see who could tell me something about who wanted a certain narrative about Now that I've lived in D.C. for so long and worked in national news for so long, I've cultivated a pretty wide body of people who've proven reliable on certain topics that I can believe because they've given me information in the past that's proven and it's borne out to be correct, and they can refer me to other sources. And I'm constantly, you know, going to different people, being referred to people. Um, I know who to call if I have a question about our intel agencies and what's really going on. I have people who will tell me that. So... I may poke around about a story for six months or a year, gathering, as they say, little bits of string before I find enough to to do something with. Or I may turn something pretty specific because, you know, within a period of a week or a couple weeks, I may locate a whistleblower or a contact or a source on something that's fairly time-sensitive that I'm able to confirm and move forth quickly. At any given time at CBS and currently at fullmeasure.news, our TV show, but there's a website too, I'm working on at least 40 stories right now. So they're all in various stages of development. You know, some that are due Sunday, some that will go on and be researched, some that will never come to fruition. They'll just sort of be chewed on, you know. Um, But there's just a sort of a constant process of talking to people, reading, gathering information, and looking for that bit of information that someone's trying to hide and why why they don't want it in our information landscape. Sure. So when... Just so that I understand. So when you were at, say, CBS News, 
you would get a lead, you would start to dig, you'd find the things that other people weren't willing to really report on or to, or to continue to search um, uh, deep, deeper into. Um, and then does that, does that go through like a regulation process or, or some type of oversight? You know, how does that go up the chain of command to ultimately getting on air? When I was at CBS, I worked my way into the investigative reporting position um, investigative reporting cannot go through the same process as like normal vetting of story ideas and assignment. It just doesn't work. In fact, if it did, most of these stories would never get done because of the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So for me at CBS, my idea is I submitted directly to the, you know, for many years, the executive producer, you know, directly sort of to the top of the program. And once he signed off, we were good to go. And they almost always signed off on him. And when they didn't, most of the time it was something they just didn't think was as interesting with all the stories I had, you know, we'd take, four out of five. Mm-hmm. So that was my process. And then once I'm done, um, I'll enlist a producer along the way to help with technical things. They will be on board with it. It would go through a senior producer's review in Washington just to look at the script. Says, do they understand it? Does it make sense? I always had my controversial stories reviewed voluntarily. It was not part of the process, but I would ask for legal review from our lawyers at CBS. And then it would go up to the show executive you know, senior producers and executives to review and typically almost no changes. You know, the changes I would expect back then in the good days were if they didn't understand something, you know, complex and I hadn't done a really good job of making it clear in the short time we have, we'd, you know, revise that. Or if they were unsure what a sound bite meant from an interview, we'd revise that. And there you have it. That was the basic process. So, um, but in your book, Stonewall, you talk about several stories that you, um, that met all your criteria as an investigative journalist that I'm assuming passed, you know, got green lights from your various producers. Um, and then at some point you'd always hit a brick wall or what I think you called as, uh, the, the light switch would go off. Um, mm-hmm. can you give us an example? First of all, uh, I think it was fast and furious. Did you break that story by the way? Well, I did. I think the Washington Post had a blurb before me, before it was really big news. So I can't say I had the very first story mentioning it, but I I guess the story mainly broke when I did a piece, my first piece that had people from inside, maybe a dozen people that had given me information about it. And then my second story, which kind of blew the roof off of it, was the key whistleblower at ATF. I did a big interview with him leading the CBS Evening News, a sitting ATF alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agent telling the government who's been denying this that I've been doing it for you every day since I was hired here, so you can't deny it now. So that was, mm-hmm. that was big news. And that was one, um, just to back up a little, CBS often assigned me to investigate stuff. So they came to me before Enron and said, oh, something's going on with Enron, can you look into it? And I broke a lot of news with Enron. They did that with Ford and Firestone Tires, you know, ended up breaking a lot of news, but they assigned me to that. They assigned me to Benghazi three weeks in. They assigned me to the BP oil spill three weeks in. You know, when they would sense the executive producer, for example, that there was more to a story and it just wasn't being fully covered or as deeply as we thought there was to cover by the regular press, they would bring me in and say, what can you find out? Fast and Furious is something I brought to them because I got my producer and I got a tip on that. And um, they liked that story too for, for a while. And then, you know, who in the process? Yes, all the lawyers loved the story, you know, proved it, no legal problems. It was approved at the D.C. Bureau level, no problems. Everybody loved it. But it hit roadblocks um, in New York with the anchor, Scott Pelley, and the new executive producer, Pat Shevlin, to the point where when we got a lot of pushback, in fairness to them, 
you know, we always get pushback for these stories that people don't want on. And if you're a strong executive producer, you know that's coming and you withstand it. You think that means usually you're probably onto something. But when you have weaker people or they, you know, they're getting pressure from a lot of different places and the Obama administration was, was relentless at the phone calls, you know, every day to different people at CBS to try to stop these stories and the emails, you know, they, you know, I don't know their, all their reasons, but at some point they didn't want any more stories on Fast and Furious. So I published them all on the web, you know, probably a hundred of them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, I can, as a, as a, as somebody who's trying to understand human behavior and, and, and understanding that not everybody thinks the same way, whatever, I, I can understand to some degree why a story might like that might, you know, hit a, hit a roadblock or whatever, especially if there's pressure, et cetera. And I, I'm assuming that all administrations give, uh, you know, they want to show that, you know, themselves in the best light as possible. So I'm assuming they put pressure regardless of who's in, in, in power at the time, I'm presuming that they, put pressure on the various media companies to put out a story that's, you know, that favors them. Um, but there is a, there was a pattern, especially with you and during the Obama administration, that um, these stories consistently hit the, you know, the light switch consistently got turned off. So um, is this, is this a case of uh, somebody at, uh, you know, at the upper echelons that just didn't align with the ideology of the story because it was painting somebody in a bad light or is it, was it, do you believe something potentially even more nefarious? It's hard to say, but I think it's a mix um, because it wasn't just those stories. It was stories about certain corporate interests. They killed a Boeing Dreamliner story. They assigned me to do when I turned up a story we all thought was amazingly important all the way up the line that never aired. So it got to be almost anything that was beyond what you could read on the wires or in a paper. They didn't want anything original and they just got very skittish. And that's where it comes into play when I started thinking, now why is it even contrary to the interests of our viewers and ratings, they were turning stuff down for mundane, repetitive news items. What would make them do that? You know, what was at play? And I realized part of this was sort of this slow industry takeover where Again, we were inviting people into our newsrooms that work for special interests and political interests, not always disclosing, you know, who was who behind them. One mm-hmm. example, Mike Morrell was hired at CBS before I left, and I did lodge a complaint, not against him personally, but that we would use him. At the same time, he worked for a PR firm started by Hillary Clinton loyalist, who's former assistant CIA director. He was intimately involved in controversy over providing false information and Benghazi when he was working for the Obama administration, and yet we hired him and let him distribute talking points and not say what his, you know, who, who was paying him the, the PR firm he worked for. And I felt like these disclosures are important if we're going to use people um, on either side, but CBS didn't agree. But, you know, this is pervasive. You know, how, yeah, how disclose, did, sometimes it's not. How did they not agree with that? Because, I mean, it violates the very integrity of, from which you're existing. <laughs> I mean, the entire... I assumed, of- you know, without knowing, when I lodged a query about this, first of all, I was told that they didn't know he did work for a... He, we hired him right after he'd been hired by this Clinton-associated PR firm. So it looked like a placement in the media to me by them. When I drew this to our attention, because my sources knew this, and they felt skittish about talking to me. Some of them are Obama Democratic officials that were sources of mine and didn't like that this guy was going to be in our newsroom. You know, they're skittish about talking to me. 
And we claimed, at least the executive level, that we didn't know that. Well, how do you not know when you hire somebody? Don't you ask? You have to ask if they have other you know, financial conflicts and ties, but apparently we hadn't. But even once they knew, they argued that um, it was not important for the viewers to know unless he was commenting on Clinton. And I said, well, that's not true. I mean, there's all kinds of ways opinions can be shaped in, in less overt ways. He's not going to say vote for Clinton necessarily, but the information he gives when you ask him about you know, Benghazi or political issues, people have a right to understand where he's coming from so that they can weight his information accordingly. Not that we shouldn't use them, we just have to disclose. And they simply disagreed. Of course. I mean, I, I think this really gets to the heart of the whole matter and, and um, the, the manipulation that is occurring at a very root level in today's media uh, and the so-called telling of the truth. Um, one of the most powerful things that you stated in one of your books was the idea of planting a seed such that somebody believes that they came up with the idea themselves. And with the amount of, I've done some other interviews with, you know, big data uh, experts and things like that. The amount of data that technology presents today for the, you know, for the news and and corporations, et cetera, and the amount of uh, analytics that they can extract from it, um, the the possibility for manipulation and the possibility for um, channeling thought is very very high because you can you can psychologically you know step people one step one tiny small step at a time to where you wake up ten years later and there's a whole new cultural belief around certain ideas like fake news like the idea of fake news and who came up with it and things like that. Um, if you read Fahrenheit, what is it, 941 or 451, I watched the modern version of that movie, and it was just about that, how if we give people, you know, it's tempting to say, yes, please control our fake news, but what you have to understand is whoever's doing that is a third party with an interest probably they're not disclosing. It'd be great if they were, you know, some, some neutral, honest third party that can just cull through all that force, but I don't think it exists. Everybody's got subjective opinions and money behind them and so on. And it gets to the point where if they can control what we see on Google, on the internet, which is what a lot of people are trying to do. And if they can then make us think that's, that's the world we live in, that little box, don't look around, look in this little box. They can dominate social media through technical tricks and propaganda tricks like you're talking about and make us think a whole reality that doesn't exist, that does exist. They can make you think, and this is their goal, that a majority of people feel a certain way on an issue by inundating social media and news with certain views, make you stop talking about it, kind of bull you into not wanting to give your opinion because think, wow, I must be really horrible and crazy if I think this. And they've effectively manipulated the landscape. They've manipulated the history you can find about the topic. So I think it's very dangerous, these efforts to supposedly call out fake news. There's new laws being passed to teach media literacy in schools. Like we don't have enough. We need to still teach our kids like basic reading and writing. They're mandating this now in schools. That's an organized effort to steer children and people towards certain sources. And it's usually when I hear it, read the New York times, read the Washington post, don't read anything else. Don't believe it. If it's in these other publications, well, that's the opposite of what critical thinkers should be doing, especially with all the mistakes those publications have been making. (laughs) Uh, It's scary. It's a slippery slope. Um, can you, um, what, what story was it that you were covering when you started to notice, uh, odd things happening with your computer when you were with CBS? Well, it's hard to say, cause I didn't notice 
there was anything wrong. I never suspected it was the government. I just thought I was having computer glitches and that maybe spammers were trying to come in. But looking back, and when you say what story, I'm working on, you know, 40 at any given time and reporting on many different topics. I was covering vaccines and autism. The uh, pharmaceutical industry was very powerful. I know from a corporate level, they were interested in trying to stop stories about pharmaceutical dangers and connections between vaccines and adverse events. But I was also doing political reporting. Actually, I don't consider it political reporting, but I know that those that touched in the end, uh, like, like the bait and switch the Bush administration pulled with the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the bank bailout, I was covering that. Mm-hmm. Fast and Furious, of course, Benghazi. And um, in retrospect, that was probably going on, I, I can't remember, maybe around 2011 and forward, where it got to a point to be so bad between Fast and Furious and Benghazi, I couldn't even use some of my, you know, I couldn't use my phones, I couldn't use a lot of my equipment because it was just, it's been explained to me when they put malware and spyware in your computers, it can make other pieces of your equipment malfunction. That was just happening constantly. And this wasn't just your work stuff. It was also your home equipment as well, correct? Right. The forensics was able to find the same um, attempts to erase their tracks on the same dates, as well as a lot of the same shenanigans and date and time changes and peering around remotely using remote access, which... I never had for my personal computers, but somebody got it to um, look around and do all kinds of things. But my computers <laughs> would turn on at night, and I would hear them try to connect to the proprietary CBS VPN because there's a noise that comes through when you don't put in the right password. And I would wake my husband up and go, what, what do you think that is? Do you think like spammers or foreign people are trying to come in the computer and take my email list? And he's like, sure, you know, whatever. We never thought it was the government. And then it turns out a government source told me when I would hear this bong when they tried to get into the CBS VPN, we later learned they did access the CBS system. Um, my government friend said that they can cut through all of those systems like butter. There's no point in even trying to put up, you know, encryption and security where that it's, it's you know, if the government wants to see your stuff, they can see your stuff very easily. Well, that's not creepy at all. Did did you ever fear for your physical safety at all? I guess you get, um, when you realize the government is actually doing this, which kind of shocked me, but when you have government insiders helping, you know, turn up the information and there's forensics and then you realize what's at stake. Yeah, that's kind of scary. But then I would also tell myself if they were going to do something to me, it had been done by now. You know, I think it was more, an effort to monitor, to try to discredit and controversialize me personally so that people wouldn't believe my stories, to know what was coming, and, and also to know who was talking to me, because this was at the height of the Obama administration, as they say, war on whistleblowers, when they were trying to identify all the people. And there were a lot of Democrats in the Obama administration um, who were speaking to me and providing me information. So the funny part is they tried to controversialize me by saying this was all Republican reporting, when they knew that the sources were by and large Democrats. So, you know, but that's a narrative that took pretty good hold. If you Google me now, Media Matters try to make that stick. You know, they'll call me a conservative reporter. or They'll say that some of these controversies I reported on were conservative issues. Well, that was a propaganda effort. If you can divide the public by making them think an important news story is in fact left and right or political, 
half the country will discard it and then it becomes politicized. And that's exactly what they're hoping for when they, you know, sink their teeth and do a propaganda campaign about a story. Yeah. So, and you get into this more in your book, Smear, but um, it, I think that's another telltale t- sign when the uh, when the reporter themselves are becoming the focus of the story rather than the story that they're trying to purport. Um, that, that at least might be a clue to, wait a second, why is this, why is this reporter trying to be discredited? discredited? Um, exactly. I mean, I, I think that's a perfect, one perfect sign to look for when people are discrediting the news outlet, the reporter, they're using key phrases, tinfoil hat, quack, nutty, crank, um, advocate, they accuse you of being an advocate for the story. All of that to try to make it where it's harder for you to cover it because all of a sudden your bosses or the public or whoever else they sick on you will argue or believe that, you know, somehow you're conflicted or that what you're reporting is irresponsible and wrong. And, you know, it can be very effective and it's hard to stand up against. One of these smear artists I interviewed for the book said specifically, journalists are easy to go after so that they're they have very thin skin, and they don't know what to do when they get hit with a social media campaign that's supposed to look organic, like a bunch of people, you know, fighting back over a story or hitting them personally. Not only does your news organization get squirrely because they don't fully understand this process, but then personally it's just hard. You know, journalists, I think one quote said, they just crumple, you know, and it, it's hard not to. It's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure. From my standpoint, once I, I understood it, like I find it intellectually fascinating and it's a little easier for me to withstand, you know, emotionally because I understand it. It's not just this random thing that's happening that I don't know what to do with. Well, you bring up a really important piece right there is the, the compartmentalization between your intellectual facts and your emotional, how you feel about certain things. And I think that's where a lot of people get lost in this and, and why we're so susceptible to manipulation, because most people are not doing that critical thinking to say, am I just feeling this? Am I reacting emotionally? Or where's the tangible, um, irrefutable facts? And so we get swept up into these narratives, into these things. And, you know, one of the things that I would love to see people do more of is just have a basic base level understanding of psychology. If you, under, if you understand, you know, psychology, I mean, if somebody's being, if, if a thousand people are saying, hey, that person's nuts and they're tinfoil hat wear and they're, and they're a quack, and you understand that that isolates that person and, and the psychological side of it that says, well, I don't want to associate myself with a, with a crazy person. Like that's very, very powerful on a psychological level that I don't know that the average person is really, you know, it is. And this language has been tested. Yeah. This is all PR tested language. And again, I studied that and I started thinking that one of the first stories again was I was covered to assigned to cover vaccines and autism. And I heard that, government officials like CDC officials calling parents, you know, quacks. And I, it was unusual for me. I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. An official is using these kind of terminology to these parents who genuinely believe, you know, whether it's true or not, that their kids were injured this way. And then I started looking back once I saw, you know, whistleblowers and studies, and I understood there was something to this connection that was being covered up. I looked back at my own reaction when people would say these things to me about other people. And I'm like, okay, why was it so effective when they told me this was a quack thing? Like, why did that word work on me at the time? Mm-hmm. And it is, it's all psychological and tested. And most people are not, you know, I certainly wasn't read in on, on all those tactics and techniques. 
yeah, it, it really illuminates. Uh, it helps you put up some defenses against uh, against this type of attack, really. I mean, it's a psychological attack if you're not aware of what they're doing. And um, how do you how do you want to be remembered from a journalist standpoint? Well, it's hard to say that there will be, you know, one way because again, everything's so polarized now. So the effort to portray me kind of hilariously as some sort of right wing probably a Trump advocate at this point, because one thing that's happened to me is by not being against Trump in all my stories, you are therefore pro-Trump. And that's the, the kind of pressure I face almost daily. I don't do a lot of political stories, but if you do a story where the president is mentioned and it's not in a negative context, it's just in passing, as I've always done with presidents, well, you're a Trump defender. You're, you, know, mm-hmm. you must support Trump and you're not fair. And it takes a lot to just, you know, most, I think a lot of reporters would be like, oh, I better say something negative because I don't want to be a Trump supporter. Well, I'd work very hard to not care, to not let that influence my reporting, to not let that make me sway one way or another, have to feel defensive about it. I would love to be remembered as somebody who brought to the public a lot of views, information, and facts that others were trying to hide from them and didn't try to shove it down your throat to make you believe something, but at least provided a resource where you could find information that others don't want you to find. And, you know, one example, I'll just give a non-political example. MRI dye, I learned, was, you know, under safety questions for a long time. I never knew this. The gadolinium with chemical in it. MRI dye. Okay. You probably didn't know this either. Well, once I learned about it, I did a couple stories on full measure. Since I did those stories, not because of them, but since I did them, the European Union has banned this kind of dye and many countries have, not in the U.S., but our FDA is supposed to issue warnings that you won't be able to find very easily. I mean, this is stunning. This is important to millions and millions of people that there's this deadly material that's being injected in children and people, sometimes unnecessarily, that could ultimately result in their death. These, this is information that should be headline news everywhere, and you probably never heard it. Nope. These are the kinds of things that at least this lives online as a resource for people who hunt around and find, you know, it won't turn up easily on the FDA website, but maybe you'll see, you know, Cheryl Atkinson's story from Full Measure. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I know you don't have a ton of time, and I really appreciate you giving us uh, a little bit today. I think that, I personally think that you represent the future of journalism moving forward um, because you've cut out the middleman in a lot of respects, and um, you've gone rogue and got independent, and, um, and I also think the level of emotional maturity that you're bringing to the table is um, is very honorable compared to where a lot of it, again it seems just like there's a very reactionary um, uh, echo chamber in a lot of these different media companies. So um, I, I only yeah. say that because I think that's that's something that people really need to consider when they're looking at well who's the source of this information and and you have always seemed to be somebody that has been independent. The fact that I don't really know where you fall on the political spectrum is a good thing in my mind. It's, it means that you're reporting it in a way that is, seems as least biased as possible. I mean, we're all human beings. We all have our own worldviews, et cetera. But um, anyway, I, th- I think you pre- represent the future of journalism and frankly, ultimately the truth, because uh, I think the more technology comes out, the, the harder it's going to be to really get at the truth. And you provide a, a 360 view of of yourself and uh, and the truth as you see it, which is, uh, I think, very important. 
Well, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you, and I'm, I'm glad if that's the impression you've gotten because that's certainly a positive one that I would like to convey. Well, I think that's something that people need to think about and, and look at, and, and who are the people that are giving these, um, these news sources, and you're an independent person. And so if somebody is interested in hearing more about you, of course, you have your Sunday program at uh, fullmeasure.news. Again, that's fullmeasure.news, um, and you can also find out more about Cheryl at her website at CherylAtkinson.com. Any other? Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> no other pitches and promotions. That, that's all. <laughs> that's all covered. People can find find all that stuff online if they're interested. Yes, plenty of stuff to Google for that. Cheryl, thanks again. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye.